All right, boys and girls, we are live with the legend, Mr. Devin Townsend. This is Rob here from Rob's School of Music, and we're about to uh, change the history of the world in this next hour, I think, and melt our, <laughs> melt our faces right off our bodies. <laughs> I'm into it. Awesome, dude. So um, we're a music school, and uh, thanks to the world the way the world is, we um, had to move everything online, so I started doing these um, weekly interviews back in April just to try and let the students know that you know there's other musicians out there obviously going through similar circumstances. And uh, one of the first questions I usually try and ask is, a lot of our students are younger, um, not in age, but just in experience, and nerves plays a huge factor um, in, in performing back you know, when we could perform live and do you have any tips for overcoming anxiety or stage fright when playing well i can safely assure you that it never goes away i think it's just it's uh an inevitable part of the process and there's some people that actually feed on that i've found some people find that that uh the adrenaline that comes from that fear helps them uh for me it doesn't <laughs> for me it typically my thought patterns before playing a very nerve-wracking show is why did i do this with my life like why why am i in front of other human beings it makes no sense to me <laughs> but uh, it's like that old adage where you have survived all the days of your life up to this point specifically the ones that you didn't think you were going to survive and um and live performance is is very similar to that. You, you you think that there's no way you can do it. You think there's no way that you're not going to be able to perform without screwing it up or 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 whatever. But you do. You just you go out there and you do it. And also with the knowledge that sometimes it goes wrong. Sometimes you have a bad show. Sometimes you have uh, all your worst fears are realized when you're on stage. But um, the real progress that I think that I've made as a performer and as a musician is um, getting over that. You know, like if you feel like you've humiliate, humiliated yourself, just getting back up on your feet is almost the the indicator that you're capable of of some degree of success. I like that. I like that very much. That's actually probably the realest answer that I've gotten to that question thus far. So that's definitely something that we can all learn from. <laughs> Anybody who tells you that they aren't nervous are either sociopathic or lying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree with you. Um, so what what started your journey? Was there a, a record or a live show you saw or something that you're like, ooh, that's what I want to do? I don't think it was, I don't think it was, uh, the formulation of, of why I do this, I don't think happened in a particularly typical way. There's no one instance. There was a few little things. Like I remember being in grade school and there was a group of musicians that came to our elementary school. I was in grade three or four and, and they showed what an electric guitar did or what a bass did. And, and that piqued my interest. And after school, like the monkeys were on TV and that was kind of a thing, musical family, etc. But for me, I think I came from a family that was very loving, but uh, emotionally, we kind of kept it to ourselves, like uh, overt displays of emotion, whether or not that was anger or, or, or really anything were not frowned upon, but it was embarrassing for people. It's kind of the, the British way of being, I guess, and um, at least back then. And being somebody that has always been since as far back as I can remember, highly sensitive and very uh, intimately wired to <laughs> perceive stimulus, <laughs> uh, that lack of an outlet for those emotional things was very difficult. And I found that there was one socially acceptable way of expressing myself, and that was through music, like through singing or or through playing so it became a loophole and my uh all that sensitivity or whatever that i i 
felt I, I needed to express came out through music and people were uh, uh, encouraging of it rather than the shutting it down. And so everything kind of got hardwired to that, I guess. And I just am bullheaded. So I just kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it without any objective. There was no real sense of, oh, I'm going to be in a band or I'm going to play shows or, or whatever. I was actually going to go to university. I got a scholarship for music, um, but I decided to go wash dishes instead <laughs> because I, uh, I, I felt that uh, I, I should pursue being in a band. And even that decision was not with any foresight. It was just, it just happened. And then here I am now I'm 48 and I've got 30 records or something out now. And, I'm as uh, sort of shocked by it as every anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, you know, from as I was trying to prep for this, I'm obviously a fan of yours, but I didn't realize how many records, how prolific. And I think as a musician and as someone who, you know, is teaching music to other people, it's so inspiring that you sort of are able to exist outside of well, it has to be this genre and it has to be this and I have to sing this way and to have that freedom, like what is the creative process? You know, how do you say this song is going to be this project? This song is going to be that. Well, I guess it's the best way to start that answer is to say I was never, you know, like a hip kid. I mean, I had buddies and everything, but I was, you know, never part of the, the in crowd, so to speak. And so the benefit of that is that I never felt like there were parameters to what was acceptable or not. I, uh, as a teen, I liked equally Metallica to Enya. And I liked uh, Def Leppard as much as I liked Stravinsky. And I liked King's X as much as I liked New Age music and Kitaro and all these things. Musicals, all those 70s musicals. And because I was never... Uh, thrust into a position where my social, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where my social collateral was tied to what I did, it made it easy. It was great. I, there's people I know now that were, you know, maybe they were the cool kids in school <laughs> that are afraid to do anything else because it doesn't fit into what is acceptable. And that made it difficult for me as I got older because of course I, I love heavy music and, and I've done a lot of heavy music, but that's an extremely conservative genre. Something that I didn't expect when I was a kid. It's the parameters for what is acceptable uh, were things that I found very limiting from early, early on. And I remember whenever I had deviated from heavy music when I was younger, like um, releasing Ocean Machine at the same time as City or Synchestra at the same time as Alien or Deconstruction <laughs> Ghost or, or whatever, uh, there'd be a certain faction of the heavy metal community that were, were like, well, we don't think that this constitutes heavy metal. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> In fact, if I don't have to, if I don't have to fit into that genre, that's ideal. It doesn't mean that I won't do it, but my reasons for doing all these different styles, I guess, to answer your question in a roundabout way is more because I'm compelled to do it and I'm not, tied to any genre right i never was the flag bearer for prog or metal or <clears throat> or anything and the creative process is actually really simple when i when i first started right from the beginning there was humor in it and there was mellow stuff and heavy stuff and pop stuff and death metal and and people were confused and i remember in the beginning people thinking it was an indicative of some sort of mental illness and like clearly Clearly, you you have to be unbalanced in order to represent all these different things. But conversely, I think the opposite is true. I think that if somebody does one thing to the exclusion of everything else, that uh, is representative of an imbalance to me. It's the equivalent of someone saying, for every meal, I'm going to eat steak. Yeah. From breakfast, I'll have a steak. And lunch, I'll have steak. And a snack, I'll have meat. And then... You know, sometimes after a while, you're like, God, I'd do anything for some granola and a salad, <laughs> you know, and music's the same. So I'll do one thing. And then once I'm done with it, 
I usually invest so much time and effort into the creation of it that when it's finished, I'm sick of it. And so what I do next is often the opposite, not because of any reason other than, man, I'm done with that. Holy cow, that took up way too much real estate in my head, right? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that that is, you know, something we pride ourselves on here at this school is we, you know, if someone comes in and they say they want to play Metallica, I say, okay, but we're going to learn jazz too. Uh, if they want to play uh, pop, okay, well, we're going to learn funk. Like I try and keep everyone well-rounded because exactly that. Why limit yourself to just one thing? Uh, there's lots of colors in the rainbow. Why not exploit all of them? However, I would I would also uh, throw this into the pot that I don't know if it's necessary. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, I guess it depends on what your objective is. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the school. I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about me. I, uh, <clears throat> I've had enough success to have, uh, you know, a, a cool little studio here and married and kids and all these sorts of things. And I make a living and all that. But you look at a band like ACDC who have been doing in one way or another, the same record for 50 years. <laughs> Yeah. And they are one of the most successful musical enterprises of all times. So I guess if your intention is to make money, I would maybe suggest uh, <laughs> not listening to me. No, man, I think I think you're spot on because I think exactly the analogy with <clears throat> eating, eating the same thing every day, that would yeah. get very, It'd very crazy. Yeah. And I'd be, I'd be so weirded out by somebody that was just like, what, you're going to eat fish, <laughs> you know, but dude, you, you've just had steak for the past six months. Yeah. Well, that's what I do. My trip is invested in, I'm the steak guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I, man. I, th I think that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, make a wide berth. <laughs> <clears throat> um, when it, when it comes to, you know, you you've you have an amazing signature guitar you have uh, you know the pickups when you're part of that process like what are the steps involved in that or is it literally uh here's a demo one oh no change the wood oh no change this and you have that evertune bridge which i can't understand but uh cool stuff going on there what, what's that process like first off i'm stuck on this thought why don't you understand the evertune um i don't I watched a video of you explaining it and I still don't because in the video you're saying that you use like not incredibly heavy strings, but even with a lower tuning, it's still okay. And that I don't understand how that works. Basically, <clears throat> sorry, I got this horrible cold. It's not horrible. It's just cold. <laughs> it's the way that the way that pitch is established on a guitar string is tension, right? right. And there's a series of springs in the body that is connected to the Evertune bridge that with an Allen key, once you get it in tune, you basically lock it so that that tension on that spring is locked in. So if you bend it, the spring goes like this. And then when you let it go, it goes like, like, like this. If the, if the neck warps, if the wood changes it with humidity and you know, then the spring might go like this, but because it's locked in, that spring maintains the tension on the string. And the result is ultimately your guitar, you never have to tune it. <laughs> it's like, but you can still bend it because of the function of it is past a certain threshold of tension. Um, then that uh, the tension is no longer maintained, right? It has to be within a, a sort of window of that tension on the spring for it to function. And if, pass that, then you can tune it sharp. And if it's below that, then you can tune it flat, right? So you keep it in the middle there and, and it makes it work. And like, like this, it's like, I, I, you know, I never tune this thing and, but I, I can still bend and I can still, I can do all this stuff, but it's just, the end result is with just a, a modicum of, of, uh, of, uh, of a learning curve this huge, huge psychological barrier for recording for me has been alleviated. Mainly, if I have an idea, I can pick up my guitar and record it and know that if the idea is of value somewhere else down the line, I can still use it. Have you ever been in the situation where you record something quickly because you've got an idea, but you didn't spend the time tuning the guitar properly? Yes. And then when you try and integrate it into a session, 
you're like, oh, that had this great feel and everything, but it's out of tune, you know, and this alleviates that. And I uh, was working with a producer recently and he had never heard of it and he was confused by it. And uh, but when he finally put it in action to record and you do an entire session, you know, three or four days without tuning your guitar and they're all dead in tune. He, he, he had all his guitars retrofitted in it with it. And I guess awesome. the reason why I, I wanted to explain that is because it plays into the other part of your question as to the process of designing the signature equipment. There's two modes of thought with it. One is someone pays you money. <laughs> so you endorse some crappy guitar because someone's given you enough money to rationalize that in your mind, right? And then you go home and play your Les Paul or, or, or whatever, right? But... But ladies and gentlemen, I thoroughly endorse the court $300 guitar or whatever. <laughs> and then the other side of it is where I like to think I lie in that my process relies on me being efficient. Because if it isn't, I get lost in the in in the thoughts, right? Like I have a I have a real tendency to think quickly when I'm writing. And so I, I keep my studio really clean. I keep it ergonomic. I keep everything within arm's reach. My guitar's always in tune. And all those things play into my ability to move quickly. And the design of the equipment is exactly the same process. With this guitar, I think, okay, for example, I love the sound of a Les Paul Custom with mahogany body, maple neck, 24 and 3 quarter inch scale, Got the pitch of the headstock that that you know all these things about that uh, accumulate into a a sound that I can rely on for one of the three guitar sounds that I I record with a heavy sound a dirty sound a clean sound and so the problem with the Les Paul for me is I don't like sitting with it it feels weird for me little things like when I put it on the ground which I will always do if I'm moving quickly I put the guitar flat on the ground the pitch of the headstock is such that the uh the joint between the body and the neck is off the ground and i snapped two guitars in my life yeah. by accidentally stepping on it so with this it's like okay how do i get that sound but how do we avoid those things so you know i made it that the pitch of the headstock was such that it had the sound yet the body was thick enough that when i lied on the ground there's like two millimeters of clearance with the headstock um the pickups I know that I like EMG 81 for a certain sound, but I know that I like a low gain single coil for a clean sound. However, uh, I don't like being out of tune when I'm on tour. I don't want to put an Evertune into an old Fender. So the Fishman, I chose to do that product with them because they said, we can give you two distinct sounds in one pickup. And so I went to Boston and I worked on it you know, I drive people crazy with my with my obsessive nature when it comes to these things. Like the famous guitar, it, it took us 10 modifications to get it right. But when it's right, because there is a goal in mind, uh, now it works. It's perfect. It's perfect for me. When I want to record a certain guitar sound, that guitar is exactly what I need. I don't want to play a Les Paul. I don't want to play a Jackson or anything. I want to play that. And so my um design process with anything that i work with is it needs to it needs to fill uh, a niche that currently no product e exists in for me cool very yeah. cool you know it's it's funny you say that in terms of um you, people will push things that they're not really a fan of i've been working with prs guitars since 2008 or so and those are the guitars I actually play. And those are the guitars at the school for people to use. And, and I feel so prideful to have something that I love to work with. Um, you definitely flip through your guitar player, Guitar World magazine, and you can certainly see musicians hawking something that you have to think for a second. Is that really what they're using? So, <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, but at the same time, I guess everybody's got to eat, right? <laughs> 100%. I did. Hey, no shame in the game, but it, it's definitely, yeah. we're hip to it. Um. Let's let's talk about your voice for a second. Your voice, the range and the power. Um, you know, in, in these interviews, I've spoken to many guitar players because I'm a guitar player by trade, a handful of drummers, but very few people that sing with the power 
that you do what what sort of routine do you like say it's show day like is it tea is it the sleep are you steaming well i should be (laughs) (laughs) um singing is a conundrum for me because i never really wanted to be a singer uh i always sang but uh, i i remember distinctly when i was first learning guitar uh having a bit of a you know a 12 year old existential crisis about well, what do you want to do do you want to be a singer or do you want to be a guitar player and at that time i had decided i would be a guitar player and i would find a singer but the psychology that comes with any instrument like if you're a drummer or a bassist or a guitar player or, or a singer uh, just based solely on the function of how you present that information to an audience it changes the way you you think about music and to explain that further as a singer a lot of times what you're presenting people is your is your trip (laughs) you know your lyrics your hang-ups your loves your feelings your and it's your voice it's the same voice that you hear when you're at the bank or, or or what have you and there's a psychology that ends up evolving from that that i was unprepared for Every time I auditioned singers, when I decided I wasn't going to be one, I was like, oh, this guy's such a, such a pain in the ass, <laughs> right? It, it's like the, the drama and the, you know, and all this sort of stuff was just, I was like, oh, God. And so I said, okay, well, until I find somebody that doesn't drive me bananas, I'll, I'll just sing. And I just never found anybody that didn't drive me bananas. And then, and then, um, I got a gig with Steve Vai in 1990, 1991. Um, and then all of a sudden he was like, oh, you're my singer. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not a singer, man. I'm, I'm a songwriter or I'm a guitar player. And so I had to learn how to sing after I was already a singer. <laughs> I, I never warmed up. They're like, don't eat tomatoes. I'm just eating loads of tomatoes. Don't eat cheese. Eating loads of cheese. Like everything that I wasn't supposed to do, I was doing. And then after a while, I just lose my voice while I'm on tour. And then that sucks, man. That is. You want to talk about compounding the fear of going on stage? Add to that fear the fact that your voice is gone. And you know, <laughs> call me tomorrow and see how you feel. <laughs> and. So slowly, and it, I, I had some experiences with some some musicians in the mid '90s who were very seasoned. They were in popular bands and really had had to be on their A game. And and they were like, "Oh, you need to learn how to do vocal warm ups." And so maybe in about '95, I started. No, maybe a little later, '98. Maybe I started doing vocal warm ups. And it's a series of scales and arpeggios and and sort of larynx uh, warm ups. You know, like making bubbly noises and humming noises and and then you know drinking booze on tour is the worst for a singer but what is sometimes even worse is having to go to bed when you've had a long week and everybody else is raging (laughs) so it's a fine line and so yes i do have techniques that i practice to try and maintain it but i think some of the power if we're going to choose that word that comes along with my voice has a lot more to do with force of will than any technique at all i think i resented singing so much that when i had to do it i just would blast (laughs) you know what i mean i was like i don't want to do this so let's just get it over with and then i just scream and then last thing i'll say about this is i'm fortunate to have had you, you probably don't want swearing on this, right? Ah, it's a rock school, man. It's allowed. Right. I had I was fortunate to have so many shitty jobs prior to to doing this. And, you know, I did a ton of things. And one of the many things I did was work in a ton of restaurants. And I was a dish pig, and I prepped the food, and I cut it up and put it in buckets. And I had to go into the walk-in cooler and organize these things. But in the walk-in cooler, no one could hear you. So while I was organizing by date all these buckets of chicken and, and steak and, and whatever, I would just scream in there. 
because at the time I really liked Jane's Addiction or Faith No More, Soundgarden, Pantera. And, uh, and so I just started screaming in the walk-in cooler and it was the best way for me to learn how to sing like that because it wasn't embarrassing. I knew no one could hear me. <laughs> and that was the way that I did it. And now I'll tour with bands because my voice is really inconsistent on tour. Sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm not. But um, I'll tour with bands that are like, they have, they're professional singers and they, you know, they gargle with lavender and, and go to bed at 7.30 and, you know, always smell like nice soap or whatever. And I, I, I'm often really, uh, I feel like a, a Neanderthal around them because they can keep their voice for the entirety of the tour and they they're always in pitch and all this stuff and dude that's not the way it is for me i just feel like i scream until i taste blood and then i hope it stays <laughs> right <laughs> i mean it's it's real but you know from so uh, my girlfriend is a singer we make music together for like eight years now and uh, the first thing that I turned her on to was the Addicted record, and she loved her voice and loved the stuff with Annika and all that stuff. It's beautiful. And then I started going deeper into the catalog and showing all these different colors to your voice. And it's just so mind-boggling that so many different things from something almost frightening to beautiful comes out of one person. So it's very, it's very cool. Well, I appreciate the compliment. That's very flattering, actually. And I will also say to this, similar to the original question that, that we had in this interview. I don't know anybody that doesn't contain all those emotions. I don't know anybody that doesn't contain frightening and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And if I do, again, I often think they're either sociopathic or they're lying to me. <laughs> you know, it's like, so my, my explanation of, of the ability to do that comes down to, well, I'm a human being, you know, I, I, I'm insecure and I, I'm arrogant and I'm judgmental. I'm like all those things that I wish I wasn't. I really wish I wasn't, man. It would be great to pretend I was some sort of enlightened cat, but I'm not, man. I'm like a mess, like everybody else. And so my voice, I just think, okay, well, I feel like this. So this is the tool that I have. It's like hammering nails with a, with a baseball bat. That's how I kind of feel about my voice. I'm like, well, this needs to be delicate. We'll figure out how to be delicate. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you, you execute it masterfully. So definitely Thank cool. You. I appreciate it. hundred um, percent. What, what's your perspective on music theory in terms of applying it to say writing? I think it's two things. I think one, it can be incredibly helpful. I've had to learn over the past three years how to orchestrate because I'm working on like a symphonic projects and this, this musical and all this. And, and so I had a teacher uh, over the course of the past couple of years say, okay, this is what a piano is. <laughs> this is where the viola's voice exists. This is where the first violin, this is where the second violin, this is where the cello, this is where the double bass, this is where the piccolo, this is where the flute, this is where the woodwinds, it's like, and the range in which that functions uh, and the intervals that you choose and how they line up and how the tonality of it, it's its like, uh, it was so frustrating at first because I, I didn't know theory. I mean, I knew high school theory. I knew, I, mean, I played tuba all through high school just because it was obnoxious, right? Not because <laughs> I wanted to be a tuba player. It was just, it was funny, right? And so I knew enough about sharps and flats and rests and, and circle of fifths and all these things to, to pass elementary school, uh, uh, elementary school music theory. But I never applied that to anything that I did. In fact, I started playing an open C tuning at such an early stage that when I went to jam with people and they say, oh, it's in A, I was like, oh, I don't know where A is or, or anything. So I have functioned up to the last four years with completely rudimentary music knowledge. Um, but by learning and going to school essentially for orchestration, I put this keyboard here and I've labeled all the keys, right? So it's A, B, C, D, and I've got a blue circle on every C. And so it's like 
I started from the beginning and then I started learning about which intervals and, and how that interacts with each other and how the vibratory qualities of this instrument, you know, maybe make a seventh sound really messed up. Uh, and the downside of that is oftentimes you can second guess your intuition with too much theory. You, you end up, and this is the best example of this for me. I, I, I work with choirs often. And on Empath, the last record I did, I had this absolutely monstrously wonderful choir, the Electra Women's Choir based out of Vancouver. And we had agreed that they would participate in the record. And I had to work with an orchestrator. And I had to say, listen, here's my MIDI. Here's all my voices doing the parts. This is what I want the choir to sing. What I would appreciate is if you take this, deconstruct the session, and then score it because I can't write those notes, but this is what I want it to sound like. And I went over to his place one night and he said, there's this one part here that doesn't musically make sense. And I was like, yeah, but it's right. And he goes, yeah, but it doesn't make sense. And I was like, yeah, but dude, it's right. He says, okay, but listen, if that voice here is doing that, then that note there is dissonant with that voice. I'm like, yeah, and that creates the effect that we're looking for. And it took me a while for... Um, for that explanation to make sense for him. And what had to happen is I had to say, listen, just do it. <laughs> and he was finally like, Oh wow, that really works. I was like, no shit. And it was the reason why it worked is because my objective was not to be musically accurate, but to follow an impression that I was hoping that the music would, would give to the listener. And that impression was uh, claustrophobic. You know, it gets, it, it, it goes like this. It's a crescendo. It's a crescendo. It's a crescendo. By the end, it turns to chaos and then resolves. And the chaos was important for me that those particular dissonant notes crested at that particular time. And uh, and he was actually very uh, interesting after that. He was like, you know, I stand corrected on that. I didn't recognize. And I think he had even said in in regards to his own theoretical knowledge that stepping outside of those boundaries can have really practical uses. So it's two things. It's good to know so you can communicate with people, but it also can be an impediment if you if you um if you view music as a stagnant right and wrong kind of thing, right? Yeah. A thousand percent. I couldn't agree more. Um one of my favorite lessons that I we have a, a bunch of teachers who work for me, but one of the lessons I pride myself on is the one where I tell everyone that there aren't any wrong notes. And that kind of blows everyone's mind. But if you put the wrong note in the right place or put the two right notes next to that wrong note and get out of there before it's two, you know, you can make that note work. And I think that's so liberating um, once you get outside of those parameters of, again, right and wrong. You know, there, there's a lot of gray in the middle there, I think. That's why I like echo. Because if you make a really wrong note with echo on it, it sounds intentional. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um, all right. So let's see which direction do we want to go? Let's do, let's do, has anything ever gone super wrong? And I'm sure as a musician that happens, but something that, time. something that was like, that stands out or something like really crazy that happened at a gig. Well, I mean, there's always, dude, always, right. Always. I mean, I can't, I can't think of an experience that I've had that has resulted in any excitement or progress that doesn't include failure. And um, my a question that often gets asked of me is, do you have any advice for musicians just starting out or musicians looking to break in or whatever, however the question's phrased, but mm -hmm. ultimately, do you have any advice for younger or more inexperienced musicians and my answer is always the same and that is you need to learn how to fail efficiently because the people who i know who are fantastic improvisers are the ones that don't fear playing the wrong note and the ones that are terrified to jam are often the ones that have had a lot of success in my experience at least and to explain that further it's almost like 
they never had the chance of fucking up so much that people thought it was they were idiots or that publicly they never did something that everybody was like, dude, that guy sucks, man. You know, did you hear that performance that's on YouTube of, I remember years ago, like, like you got the song kingdom that I've been playing for years and it's, you know, it's, it's not the hardest one I've got to sing, but it sucks to sing because it's high and lots of vibrato and whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did this festival in France. It's, you know, it's like 80,000 people. And <clears throat> the one song they chose was Kingdom. And I shit the bed so hard on it, man. It just sounds like I had my balls stuck in a taffy puller. And it's like the whole thing was just, it's like, and it's on the front page. And I'm like, wah! And I remember thinking, you know, there's all these people that, that see maybe some of the stuff I do online, like there's the EMG version and there's all these other versions of kingdom that are like pretty good, but those are not the same situation. It's not like you had no sleep and it was dusty and you're nervous and everything. It's like, no, they fed you and then they give you three takes and then you get to do it right and mix it yourself. Right. And this wasn't that. And I remember thinking after that, it's like, Oh God, how can I ever live this down? No one's ever going to give me an opportunity like that again, because I suck so hard. But that becomes this weird um that becomes this weird trap as well it's like you, we get so used to residing in our insecurity and in our self-pity and in our pain and anger and judgmental nature that in absence of it it's like our identity goes away and we're super uncomfortable with it so it becomes this devil that we know to sit there after you've screwed something up and be like oh i suck Oh, I suck. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, I suck. I suck. As opposed to, yeah, dude, it sucked for sure. But next. And if you can learn to do that, there's a huge amount of growth that comes from that huge amount. In fact, a lot of the people that I continue to work with, because I've worked with so many musicians and a lot of them go by the wayside for a number of reasons. It's not just this, you know, either personality or just outgrow each other or whatever. But the people that I stick with typically are the ones that have fucked up colossally, but keep going, you know, like recognize that that was a mistake, either apologize for it or figure out a way for it not to happen again and just try again, try again. No one who's achieved any level of success hasn't done that. And I think a lot of times you're so afraid of looking like an idiot, specifically with the internet and all this stuff now, that... Uh, people are terrified to fail, but if you can learn to do it, uh, <clears throat> that's the biggest piece of advice I can give you. I like that a lot. I like that very much. One of the stories that I kind of tell people, because a lot of the students know, you know, the school is Rob's School of Music and I'm Rob. So it's, it's kind of built into the title, you know, but my musical career had many ups and downs. Um, my family owned a restaurant 10 years ago that didn't work because the like failure is definitely part of the process. So that's tremendous yeah. advice. Well, I think it's, it's, it's also good to, to, to not define yourself by that failure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's if, if, if you did something that maybe you did something that you feel is irreparable, you know, like just you hurt somebody in a way that you feel is unforgivable. I think that learning how to forgive yourself is, is another thing that sort of falls under the same umbrella because um, no one else is going to do it. You know, it's like some people will take them down. They've done something. That's it. That's it for their life. You know, they just live in that failure for, for eternity mm. and it defines them. It's like what Ace Ventura laces out, you know, <laughs> that whole thing. I think that I think that's a, another trap to be avoided. No one cares, and if they do, they only care for a week, just long enough to make you feel like shit, and then they move on to something else, right? And then you come back and they forget, like, "Oh, hey, it's good to see you again." You're like, "Oh man, I thought I could never show my face after that performance." They're just like, "What? Oh, right. oh gosh, you you think we've been thinking about that? God, we stopped thinking about that two days after it was done." You know, <laughs> that's very very true. Uh, you talked about um, you got to mix it. Production, your production is fantastic. Um, what what software are you using? Is it Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton? Yes, all three. 
<laughs> yeah, I use I use Pro Tools as my main DAW for mixing and tracking. I use Logic for orchestral work uh, and uh, just kind of musical loop-based things. Uh, and I use Ableton. I got the push, and I really think that's a cool unit. And uh, I sort of go between. So the home base is, is always Pro Tools, but I do submixes. Uh, so I'll export my current work to zero. Then I have a folder in that um, in that songs folder that says Pro Tools, Ableton Logic, or, or what have you. And in each one of those is mixes for Logic, mixes for Ableton. And then I make a session under each one of those folders that is the same tempo that I just keep replacing that submix in. And then if I, for example, want to do uh, MIDI-based orchestra work with the Spitfire libraries or the Cine, Cine samples libraries or any of those things, Logic is just a much more efficient platform for me for that. Like the MIDI implementation is really cool, and I really love the the retroactive record function. I like that you can you can modify your keystrokes to your own to your own work. And having that compartmentalized, so when I'm in Logic, I'm like, this is what I do in Logic. I don't track vocals in Logic. You know, I don't track guitars in Logic. I do symphonic stuff, and I do loop-based stuff in this. And then when it comes to just making alien freak-out sounds, which I like doing, um, I use Ableton because, dude, Ableton's bananas, right? I just have the session, and I bring it in, and I've got push set up, and I just push push right here, and then I just press play, and I go, wee, and then I print it. <laughs> move it back into Pro Tools, and then start to refine it so it makes more sense. It's funny how you say that with Push. I was always, I was a Pro Tools guy forever, and then about four years ago, got into Logic. I use that as my main uh, for everything, but I won't record vocals into it. I still like the editing, just vocals into Pro Tools better. But during the quarantine and this whole you know eight-month saga, I picked up the Push in Ableton, and it's it's a whole other world of coolness. So much fun, man. Yeah. So much fun. <laughs> It's it's a big learning curve, and I mean, I I find that I, I I know Ableton the least of them all. Uh, at one time, I was actually much better at Ableton than I am now. But I find that at least back when I, I started using it on, at three, like live three, and the sound quality was really weird. It was like kind of cheap sounding in a weird way, the way that it processed it, and. Um, and so I, I, I stepped away from it for a while and only use it for having fun. And that's basically what it remains as for me. And Logic is, I mean, I love Logic. I think Logic X is, is an incredible program. But there's a bunch of stuff about it that really frustrates me, too. There's a bunch of the editing functions that, and it's not that they're bad at all. It's just my muscle memory. I can rage in Pro Tools, man. I, I'm so fast at it that when I am in Logic, even though I'm, I'm I'm getting better at it, and and I'm I'm constantly surprised at how cool it is and the new things that they and the price is awesome. But um, but I'll be working and I'm like, oh, I can't think fast enough. I'm having to I'm having to like. There's no muscle memory here. I'm having to. Like, oh, God, okay, how do I do that again? Shit, what's the, uh, uh, you know what I mean? Whereas with Pro Tools, I can just be like, bang, 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 you know? Yeah, I completely, completely agree with that. Yeah. Uh, from my experiences as well. When it comes to recording your guitars, is it uh, using an Axe Effects? Are you miking up amps? What is that process? Well, I, I like the experimentation, although it can be very frustrating because it's a waste of time at some point. But, um, I'd say a little of everything, but primarily Axe FX3. So I've got the Kemper, I've got the Helix, I've got Axe FX3, Axe FX2. I've got the Torpedo that if I need to use an amp. Uh, I've got a couple of old amps. You know, I've got this old 1950s Fender Champ that's really nice. But I work so closely with Matt Picone and the Fractal crew that everything that you've heard on any record of mine since 2009 has been Axe Effects. There's been one or two overdubs that may I might beef something up with an impulse response that I, I got from a buddy for the Kemper, but it's got a different low end and I, I don't dig it. 
And um, I used the Helix. Actually, I used the Helix a lot, a ton, actually, but not for guitar sounds. It's just, it's, it's really a musical unit that has interesting, strange ways of making loops for me. But I don't like the sound of it nearly as much for like a Fender or a Mesa or a Marshall. And uh, on Ampath, I rented a studio and spent three days with, I, I brought in 12 cabs, vintage cabs, new cabs. I had 12 different heads. I had all these boutique things. We had Soldanos and Bogners and Mesas and Mar modified Marshalls and EVH, just everything, because I was convinced that the sounds that I wanted to get, you know, I, I was convinced that I was like phoning it in with the fractal. I was like, I can, there's clearly it can be better. So I went to the best studio in town, big SSL board. We spent all like the first day and a half just finding the opportune points for the microphones, like to the best of my ability. I got 12 of the best amps and cabs set up as I could. And we recorded these sounds. And uh, I said, you know, we let, let's record a DI as well, just to, be, just to be careful. And this is what I found from it, is that the music that I write is so dense that that big sound that I got with the analog amp, by the time I fit it into the mix, I had to do high and low pass so much that all that was left was this unmusical mid-range. So I reamped it all through the Axe effects after all of that. But I did it a little different in that I went to a kind of famous producer's place with the Axe effects, and I said, let's run the Axe effects into a power amp, into a vintage cab. Let's make an IR of just the cab, but use the preamp in the Axe effects for our sound source. So as opposed to trying to replicate an amplifier, the preamp is the Axe effects. And we just mic'd up this cab and got the most kick-ass sound that we could using the Axe effects as a preamp, made an IR of it that now I use for everything. And honestly, the Axe effects sounds so much better than any amp that I use. Yeah. But, I... Go sorry? On, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, um, someone told me the other day, you know, they say, oh, you know, you're, you're, you always are, uh, you know, in the midst of some sort of existential thing. And, you know, they said you should, uh, I've never gone through that, you know, and, and as a result, I'm happy. And I was thinking, yeah, but I don't want that happiness. <laughs> the happiness that I want is a result of having um, found out for myself. And that's how I, I did the amplifier thing. Now I'm fine with the Axe effects, but prior to going through that experience, I was convinced I was missing out on something. I agree. I can't even like, it's, it's so crazy. Some of the things you're saying, cause it's like in my own head over the course of all the different guitar players I've gotten to talk to throughout this, that's one of the constant internal dilemmas of, well, yeah, modeling can do this, this and that, but it's not a real amp, you know? And uh, I was in that headspace for so long. Um, and I tried the Helix. Um, I tried a Kemper. And then I got the Axe FX3. Yeah. And I run it through a, a powered Friedman cabinet, and it is the best sounding amplifier yeah. I've played in my life. It's and sick. Any sound I want, it feels like an amp. The way it responds to your play. Totally. Yeah. And it's, 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 I'm really glad to have had that experience as well because, um, you know, it's Luke Skywalker going back into the, uh, going back into the forest, you know. And Yoda's just like, hey, you're not gonna, you're not gonna dig what you find. He's like, but I need to know. <laughs> That's how I felt about uh, amps versus Axe effects, and I ended up spending like three grand just to realize that I already had what I was looking for. Well, thank you for doing that work for all of us, because now we. Know. <laughs> I doubt that anybody will take my word for it, but you know, take my I, word for it. I, I believe it. <laughs> so my uh, uh two two closing things one is like a rapid fire series of questions and the other one uh we'll start with if you had to assemble a super group of other musicians living or dead you can play with them or not it doesn't matter uh you know five other guys four other guys or girls who, who would you pick my first thought is no one 
but that's just because I find most of the time the social implications of being with people to be really trying. Yeah, remove any bullshit just on talent alone. You don't have to talk to him. <laughs> hmm. Gosh, I don't know, man. I got to play with most of the people that I really wanted to play with. That's cool. I uh, I would always choose my friends, I think. Yeah. You know, I've got one or two friends in bands. I mean, I've toured for years, but I've only got like one or two people that are like friends. After all that touring, there's only like one or two people. So I would choose them, but... Uh, Yeah, man. Sorry, this is this is a question that you've just stumped me with. That's okay. I mean that that the initial answer was kind of an answer in itself. So mm. it it's a complicated question. I that question. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say most of the time when people talk about supergroups, they assume that you get a bunch of people who have had a vision together, right? And they think it's going to work. Like, oh, we'll get John Bonham and Jimi Hendrix, and but at the end of the day, a lot of the reason why these bands existed in the form that they did is there is some sort of unspoken hierarchy between these people in that they filled in peaks and valleys in each other's personalities that created something. So I've gotten offered on a number of occasions from other musicians in my field or peers or whatever, well, we should do this quote unquote super group, which is ultimately just this <laughs> lower mid tier jerk off fest right but um <laughs> but i think to myself yeah but we all do our own projects what are we going to say to each other we're either going to be so polite with each other that we're going to have a bunch of mediocre material or we're going to kill each other <laughs> you know like the reason why i can function the way that i do is because i have control over it mm -hmm. and in any situation that i've been in where we jam and create wonderful things as a result of me being part of a collective it's because we're buddies right you know, and I, I find that I've been able to have jams, brilliant to me, musical jams with people who are my friends and not the best musicians in the world. And those jams are infinitely better than me trying to jam with established musicians because everybody's kind of got this thing. Everybody's either got their nose out of joint or they don't want to jam or somebody's afraid to say something and talk over the other person. And so that's the reason why it's a complicated complicated question for me i think it would my roundabout answer is i would play bass in a really simple band with a bunch of people that that didn't uh have drama yeah i dig it i totally dig it I, i've had many of uh falling outs over people for various ego things and currently the project that i'm doing is is in a similar vein where there isn't any struggle so it definitely mm -hmm. makes sense to me well, and I know that I'm a liability too. Yeah, you know, there's people that I like to think, oh, I don't want any drama. But dude, I've, I've, man, I'm, I'm a hard guy to be in the band with, you know. So I think to myself, well, I wouldn't really want to be in a band with me. <laughs> you know, I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> I dig it, man. I do. Um, all right. Well, then this last part, my closing thing is a series of rapid fire questions. Uh, this or that, all gear and music related. Sure. Um, when I was asking these questions, you know, about a month or so ago, I always had to preface it that it was going to be nothing political or in that vein, because everyone when a series of questions, everyone would kind of chap up a bit, but no gear, music. Okay, fun. Sure, yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, humbucker or single coil, single coil. Nice. All right. Uh, Les Paul or Strat 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 or Telly Telly Les Paul or SG Les Paul P bass or jazz bass. P bass. Cool. Uh, Martin or Taylor acoustic? Martin. Fender or Marshall amplifier? Fender. Oh, you're great at these. Just let them go. Cool. All right. Effects. <laughs> Delay or reverb? Delay. <laughs> Fuzz or overdrive? Overdrive. Phaser or chorus? Phaser. That's the only one that that's the definitive right answer. So we're good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beatles or Stones? Beatles. John or Paul? 
Paul. Okay. That's also, I agree there. Uh, Zeppelin or Floyd? Oh, that's a, that's a rough one. <laughs> At one time it would have been unequivocally Zeppelin, but now I think it's Floyd. Okay, cool. So then if it were to be Floyd, would it be dark side or the wall? The wall. I'm a wall guy too. Awesome. Um, the rest of them aren't super heavy. Pearl Jam or Nirvana? Oh, I like them both. Uh, probably Nirvana, though. Okay, and then the rest are... The last one, it's... You ever see the movie Airheads? I Maybe. Is that the one with Brendan Fraser? Yeah. Yeah, I vaguely yeah. remember it. Yeah, that's okay. like the one that's so hard to watch now because it's so 90s. Yes, yeah, so 90s. Yeah. Yeah. That's, honestly, that's how I got turned on to PRS Guitars was that movie because that's what he oh, yeah. request. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> there's a line in the movie where they're uh, asking him and, and the cop says to him, uh, Lemmy or God? And then it's, it's Lemmy is God. But Lemmy is God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, no no one seems to get it. I really like, honestly, I'm deleting that question right now from the list because it just doesn't land very well. What, Lemmy or God? Yeah. Oh, God, for sure. Oh, my God. Kidding me? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I would, I would, uh, I saw the Lemmy thing where he's talking about uh, having a tryst with a woman with his son and i remember thinking like oh. <laughs> some line shouldn't be crossed yeah when you think about what whatever your concept of god is if it's you know a man with a beard or if it's just the overarching uh energy that is everything which is how i would certainly perceive it right uh yeah man lemmy can have uh he can have his uh, his tryst with his son for <laughs> as long as he wants. That being said, uh, Motorhead is one of my favorite bands ever. So, yeah, they are fantastic, man. Oh it's it's, it, it's funny how like when you take the person out of the equation or the equation out of the person, like music is music, and I think that's like my main point in doing these. And thank you so so much for your time. You're so um, welcome. You know, it, it's a crazy time of the year and the world and such, but it's I've just. Got... I've got friends. I've got a ton of friends that worked with Motorhead. I've got a ton of friends that toured with Motorhead. I, you know, the tour manager that I worked with did Motorhead for years. The sound man I worked with did Motorhead. The guitar tech. Um, friends of mine band did all these tours with Motorhead. And everybody says, without a word of a lie, that Lemmy is every bit as badass and as good a dude as people uh claim him to be you know and i think that i did a couple of festivals with them but i never talked to them but uh knowing the crew and everything sometimes you can tell a lot about a band by talking to the crew like when when the conversation of their employer comes up they either shut down or they start looking at their shoes and you're like oh he's one of those but with with them everybody was super super protective of them in a way that made me feel that they all were like, I'd do anything for this guy. And I think the reason why they felt that way is because there was zero bullshit with him. He was just who he was with all the ups and downs, like at every minute of the day. And and I think any one of us, that's an awesome thing to strive for. We can only hope to get to that point. But at the same time, you know, you'd, maybe you'd have to be banging people with him, which would be heavy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I draw the line, and, and my lines are pretty transparent, but that's one I may draw. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm joking, obviously. I don't know anything about it. But uh, but no, I, I hear that he was one of the, the greatest people ever, and, and, and I'm glad. Because now I, when I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, he's still awesome. Right? Yeah. Awesome, dude. Well, that that's that's our time and i just thank you so much for the music and being inspiring and just your humor i didn't even get into that man there's you're, you're a funny guy and that's that's so cool when when music when you you know it's not always black jackets and sunglasses and you know the, it's a defense mechanism though I'm, I'm i'm reasonably confident that that's what it is but i appreciate it nonetheless <laughs> well i think you're awesome so. Thanks, man. You too, buddy. And good luck with the school. And I think it's really cool what you're doing. And uh, to anybody watching this, you know, good luck and uh, and uh, give Rob a high five. And uh, I'll see you guys around.
Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Enjoy the rest of the year, and hopefully good things start to come. You're welcome, buddy. Have a good one. You too. Be well. Bye-bye. Yeah.